we know that you will love this podcast. So shut your mouth and listen to Canadian Bushcraft. Hello, Dragonfly Nation. This is the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Caleb Musgrave. And this episode is all about updates. Updates on everything from courses that are coming up potentially still hoping we're planning them out we'll talk about that in a bit all the way to the quarter acre homestead projects uh regarding the waterfowl regarding all of our meat birds regarding the crops we're growing everything else but also about projects that are coming up big things that are coming up in the canadian bushcraft life in the next few months one of the first thing that's needs to be an update about is what we talked about in one of our last episodes the hunter's journey uh, the Hunter's Journey course is starting this September and s- happening on August 14th. The price is going from $495 up to $595. So this is your last chance between now and August 14th, 2021 to save $100 on the Hunter's Journey course. So if you want to sign up, go to www.thehuntersjourney.com and save yourself $100 between now and August 14th. I'm really excited about the Hunter's Journey course. I'm I'm honestly really proud of it. Chris has put a crap ton of work into it. And I've put, you know, I think I put a fair share of work into it myself as well. We've been filming videos. We've been writing uh, an entire workbook. Like we're writing a book on hunting in an ethical, sustainable way. It's incredible. I'm really proud of this project. And I, I can't say enough about it. So if you want to learn more about hunting, If you want to understand what hunting is, if you want to become a better hunter, even if you're already into hunting already, this is a course that's open to everyone from every kind of demographic and from anywhere around the world. You don't have to be a Canadian resident to learn from this course. It's a, it's open to Americans. It's open to Europeans. It's open to Australians. It's open to anybody around the world from any culture. You can learn from this. So that out of the way. Let's get into the rest of what we have for updates. The The first one I want to go down because it's a large one is the Quarter Acre Homestead Project. If you follow us on any of our social media, and of course, if you're one of our patrons over on Patreon, you know that we've been building up a very energy intensive project. It's been very, very, it's been basically since last year, as soon as the ground was thawed. Uh, once the pandemic began and the ground was thawed enough that I could start digging, I began building a garden. I started building uh, an area to grow crops as well as to raise meat birds and waterfowl and everything else. And it's been a lot of work. And luckily this year with the uh, opening of, you know, the places are opening up more, we could bring in people like especially our good friend, Rye, the adventure guy who has been doing the lion's share of the physical labor, uh, on this project, we have cleared a quarter acre of land and we're growing everything from corn and beans and squash to tomatoes and carrots. And now we have an orchard, uh, re- literally a food forest of apples, quinces, uh, Saskatoon's plums, all these things are growing in there. And then all along with that, we have waterfowl, we have ducks, we have geese, we have quail as well, which are, we're going to talk about them in a moment, but it's been a really fun project. And of course, you know about all this stuff already. If you've been following us on social media, uh, we hatched six ducklings ourselves. We hatched six goslings 
And then we received three more ducklings from our good friends, Aaron and Tanner, who are Cayuga ducks. And so we have six uh, Indian runner, half Indian runner, uh, half khaki Campbell cross ducks that we hatched, and then four mystery geese. We don't know what their breed is whatsoever. We've been trying to figure it out since the day they were hatched. Honestly, we're trying to figure it out before then, but it was hard to see through the egg. Um, and then three Cayugas. Add on to that, we had uh, nine adult ducks already. We had two Indian runner hens. We had a khaki Campbell drake. We had a uh, Muscovy drake, who we call Goliath, and he is a monster. He is absolutely huge. And then two Muscovy hens. And then along with that, we had uh, two East Indies. Uh, both of them are drakes, East Indies, Black East Indies which are a bantam duck. They're pretty much just an ornamental duck. They're not great for meat. They're not great for eggs, especially because they're drakes. They don't really lay eggs because they're drakes. And then finally, we have a Pekin duck known, known as Percy, who's a jerk. Um, Emily loves him. I can't stand him. But anyways, uh, those are our adults. Added on with these six of our hatchlings and then the three other uh, ducklings that we got. And for goslings, we have 21 waterfowl living in the food forest. And for most of the year, they were separated for most of their lives. They were separated. And then about three weeks ago, we combined the flock in a larger pen, which was built frankly, because of, we begged, borrowed and stealed or stole as much as we could. We didn't steal much. Uh, we, we, uh, stole from the bush. We were going out and finding just old pallets and stuff on sides of roads and taking those. And then friends of ours who were closing down their homesteads, we were taking some of their old stuff that they were giving us. And so we built a huge pen that surrounds the entire food forest. And then we built a, uh, fixed an old chicken coop and retrofitted it into being a duck house or a duck coop that holds all 21 of the birds. Uh, sorry, actually not all 21. We're holding 19 in there. We have three other, or uh, sorry, we're holding 18 in there. We have three other birds in a quarantine cage, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, and so, yeah, we've been doing that in the, the ducks. For, we have these ducks for a lot of reasons. First off, I love ducks. Um, if you watched our, if you listen to our waterfowl episode, you know how much I admire and love waterfowl that ducks and geese are birds that yes, I hunt. Yes, I eat, but I really do admire and love and cherish them. Uh, as do many waterfowl hunters. Uh, I know a lot of people who waterfowl hunt who also raise waterfowl because they just love those birds so much and they, they're so fascinated by them and, and intrigued by them just like I am. And so that was the first reason I love them. I always wanted to have pet ducks. I always wanted to have them in my homestead. Um, and so we finally bit the bullet last year and uh, received a few ducks and bought a few ducks and then slowly stockpiled and start hatching eggs. And now we have 21 of the damn things. <laughs> the other reason that we have them is eggs. Currently the ducks are laying three eggs to four eggs a day. So we're averaging about a dozen eggs every three to four days when the hatchlings mature enough, because most of them seem to be hens. We don't have very many drakes in the hatchlings. I think we may have one, uh, the other, you know, five plus the three that we received seem to be hens, which means we could be, ten, we could be getting uh, a dozen eggs a day by the end of the summer, probably into September. Uh, which means that we'll be able to eat a lot of eggs and trade eggs and give eggs away and sell eggs potentially if we so choose. And so that's really cool for us. The other reasons we got the ducks is that duck, and I think we talked about this on the homesteading 101 class, uh, session of the podcast, 
and uh, what it is that duck fecal matter, duck poop, is one of the most well-balanced and nutritious fertilizers you can find on the market. And because it's so diluted, because they they eat a lot of wet things, they drink a lot of water, they are waterfowl, their poop is very diluted. And so unlike chicken poop or cow manure, you can put it right on your crop. You can put it right on your plants, right on your flowers, right on your beans, anything, and it won't burn the roots, which is really impressive. So what we did was we put them in our food forest and they just wander around eating bugs, which is the other benefit is they're a pest control form. Uh, they are a form of pest control is what I meant to say. That also fertilizes. And the geese are herbivores, which is kind of a struggle because they want to eat a lot of our trees, but luckily they're actually plucking the only the leaves they can reach, which is causing the trees to have to bolt up and get taller so that they can continue to photosynthesize, which is actually encouraging the trees to grow more. And yeah, that's, that's another real cool thing is like we can feed the geese pretty much just the weeds from our garden, as long as they're safe for the bird. So lamb's quarter, garlic, mustard, grass. We got so much crab grass. It shows up in our garden every year and I can rip it up by the roots and just toss it into the pen and the geese and the ducks eat it right up and turn it into fertilizer for my trees, which has been a very, uh, cool system to work with. It's been really, really fascinating to watch that, uh, happen. The problem is when we first had them, we had the hatchlings in one pen and the adults in the other pen and the, and the hatchlings, as they were getting bigger, they were getting too big for the temporary coop that we had for them, which used to be a dog house igloo, those little plastic igloos that dogs can be in. Uh, and then we just bolted a folding down ramp. That was their door. Problem was one of our Cougas, Munin, Munin Bluebeak, uh, as Emily named him, her, we're not sure yet. We're pretty sure Munin's a female. Um, it's hard to tell with them because the Cugas are black green color for both the hens and the drakes. So it's very difficult to tell until they get mature enough. And they start quacking like a hen or quacking like a drake. And if they get a little curly tail feather on them, we know it's a drake, but that's gonna be another couple of weeks to another month before we really, really know for sure. But anyways, Munin tried to get out as quick as they could, got their foot caught inside the ramp and all the other ducks you know, dogpile them as they're all trying to run out the door and accidentally broke Munin's foot. And that broke our hearts because ducks are, you know, birds, when they break a bone, they're very thin boned. It's really hard to heal them. It's really hard to make sure they're solid again and they're strong again. And so a lot of people, they'll say, well, it's a duck, kill it and eat it. And that did cross our minds, but we were like, you know what? No, these are not at their full potential. And this is an, if this is, if, if Munin is a hen, that's an egg layer we lose and we really want the eggs. So we bit the bullet and we went to a livestock veterinarian and had Munin looked over and luckily the broken foot, the break was clean, but also still in line. It, 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 it was not, uh, you know, angled or twisted or, or cranked out at a bad angle. And so the vet simply made a very simple, you know, PVC pipe with vet wrap cast which Munin will stay in for the next two more weeks. That was three weeks ago that, that happened. So two more weeks, uh, they're in quarantine in a cage inside the pen, uh, that has a roof on it. It's basically like a coop and run. That's very small. It's an old dog crate. 
Uh, they have their own clean water that they can't get into and swim and get the cast all mucky and gross. Uh, they have their own food and we're increasing their calcium intake in the food to help their bones set and uh, solidify and strengthen again. But we didn't want them to be alone in our two East Indies. They're really small ducks and they've been getting beat up by our, uh, Drake, uh, Pekin, as well as our Drake, um, Khaki Campbell. They were getting beat up a lot in the old pen. And so we put them in with Munin to keep Munin company. And because birds, the, these are sociable birds. These are social animals. And so they need, like, if you're, if you want to have a pet duck, you need two. You can't just have one. You need two. Okay. So we didn't want Munin being lonely. We didn't want these two getting beat up anymore. So we put them all together and they're doing really well together. They're doing really well. They're eating food together. They're sharing water. Uh, they don't fight with each other. The two uh, East Indies don't hurt Munin and Munin doesn't hurt them. And so in another two weeks, we'll be releasing them into the rest of the flock and it'll be great. It's so far, it's been really good. Uh, through the process, Rye and I built a pond. We are still fiddling around with the pond because the liner we have is a little smaller than we'd like. Um, and because we have, you know, 18 waterfowl pooping in that water and muddying that water up and dragging dirt and grit in with them off their feet and off their feathers. Uh, and they clean themselves in the water. That's like waterfowl need water. And yes, farm raised ducks and geese do not need a pond. They don't need it. They can, they just need to get their, their beaks or bills completely submerged so they can cleanse out their nostrils and drink water and they can bathe with it. So if you have ducks in your backyard, you don't need to build a pond for them. It, it's, it's nice to have, and we're going to talk about that in a moment, but really what you need to do is just make sure they have a bucket of water and they can, they can get, get by just with that. And they will be more than healthy with that. However, I want my ducks and geese to be as happy as they can be. I don't want them being just meat or eggs. I don't want this to be when I, when I started raising livestock, which is what they are, uh, they, they are to a degree family and they are to a degree pets, but they are, they are livestock. I want to do it in an ethical manner. I want to do it in a way that made me feel like the birds are healthy and happy. If they're healthy and happy, then I feel good. And I feel like I can continue to consume them. It's why I hunt is those animals that I hunt are out in the wild. We've had this conversation before. I don't really want to buy in on agribusiness where we're just stockpiling animals in a barn or in cages and just have them in there until we want to eat them or until we want to take their eggs or until we want to milk them or whatever. So we want them to be as free range as possible while still protecting them because we have foxes living right across the road from us. We have hawks. I had uh, two ducks taken from me in the wintertime by an owl and I had a hawk take one of my last ducks, one of my last uh, mature ducks back in the sugar bush season around April, uh, sorry, uh, March. And so I need to make sure that my ducks are safe, which is why we have a duck coop and why we have a pen around them and all that kind of stuff. But I want them to be able to feel like they're not prisoners. And so that's been really, really important to me. And I think it's working. So we built a pond for them so they could be happy. And the pond is, you know, uh, let's say eight feet wide, six feet long or vice versa, and about 20 inches deep at the deepest. And that allows them to get up off their feet and float. And that's actually really important for waterfowl. As much as people tell you that waterfowl just need a bucket, like I just said, there is one concern 
that makes you want to get them into water and float and swim. And that is bumblefoot, which is a infection, uh, which is basically a form of staph infection that can get into their foot. And one of the leading causes for it, uh, they'll tell you, people will tell you a lot of different things that cause it. And they're all correct. Bumblefoot can be caused by a lot of forms, but the main one is on bigger birds, the impact of them walking and putting all their weight on their feet all the time. And that's, that can actually uh, suppress blood circulation, which leads to when they do get a little pinprick of a sliver or anything in their foot, there's less blood flow, less blood circulation that leads to infection. And that allows a breeding ground for the staph infection to happen. And that's where bumblefoot comes from. And it turned out that a bunch of our quail that we rescued had bumblefoot. And it turned out that a couple of our ducks had bumblefoot because they were walking around on hard wood chip flooring uh, on wood chip ground. And then a wooden floored coop, which did have straw in it. But if you don't constantly refresh that straw, there's a chance of infection to happen. And so when we realized that we treated the bumblefoot immediately as quickly as possible. And then we started building a pond as quickly as possible so they can get up and float and take pressure off their feet and let those feet heal and get circulation. It's a big deal to me. I want my ducks both happy and healthy. So that's what we're doing. And the problem is within 15 minutes, they turn the pond into chocolate milk and it's disgusting. And I, if you, even with a bubbler or an air filter, like a, uh, an aeration system inside of the pond, it's going to smell like duck poop within like a day guaranteed. And so we were trying to figure out ways we can deal with that. We put, you know, plants in there that could actually consume fecal matter and use that almost like a quackaponics instead of hydroponics or aquaponics. That worked for about 20 minutes. And then the geese ate all the plants. <laughs> They were gone. All the plants were gone. We had two really good sweet flag plants that I had nurtured all spring and put in there in the pond. And those plants were eaten within 15 minutes. They were gone. We tried uh, mussels. Sorry, I'm chewing a piece of ice by accident. I was drinking iced coffee. Uh, we put mussels in the water, you know, filter feeders in the water. Uh, the water got so filthy that they died. They died. So we're now using, we set it up this past week using Patreon money, using the patrons donations to us and, uh, or exchange with us. And we built a three stage water filter and the water filter works in the process of its three, five gallon buckets. The first one is filled. It's the mechanical filter. The second one is our bio filter. And the final one is our chemical filter. So we have three different filters hooked up together with a pump. Currently it's a sump pump that we got from uh, a shed that was donated to us that had a bunch of stuff. And they said, you have to take everything if you want the shed. So we took the shed and everything with it. And in there, we found a brand new sump pump. And so we hooked that up in a couple more days. We should have an actual filter pump that is for ponds arriving, which has a variable speed uh, actuator on. So we can actually control how much flow is going through this filter, which will help the, which will help a lot. Uh, but right now we have it hooked up to a sump pump and then it goes in from the very top of the first bucket and it goes down the very bottom there's a t-pipe uh, on each end of the t-pipe are 45 degree angle pipes that spray the water in two different directions causing a swirl and what happens is all that pond water comes in with all the poop all the dirt all the muck it gets sucked up by the fill uh, by the pump and dumped into this tank of slower water 
And as it sprays in that swirl, it slows down and all the heavy medium, the, the solid waste floats to the bottom. It sinks to the bottom and settles there. And we can drain that once a week into a bucket. And that uh, waste can be used as fertilizer on the garden. Uh, but then as it flows up and fills up the bucket, there's a bunch of physical medium that actually slows down and filters out any more solid waste. And those are made out of synthetic scrubbies that we got from the dollar store. We bought like 16 packs. Rye and I went to the dollar store to, to build this filter. And I felt so bad for the, the, the cashier. She was very confused when she saw just one, two, three, seven, 10, 12, 15, 16 packs of scrubbies come out of our shopping cart. And we packed them in there nice and tight. We folded them together to fill up every single nook and cranny, slit a couple open, and then stuffed those down the pipe, uh, the inlet pipe, and brought them right to the top. And then there's a PVC pipe at the top that is our drain into the next bucket. And it goes down at a 45 degree angle and fills the next bucket up from the bottom. And that one's filled. So the first one is our, is our physical filter, our, our mechanical filter. And that's the, 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 the bio swirl, the swirl, uh, the swirl pump at the, or not swirl pump, but the swirl effect at the bottom with the slower water. And then the water filters up through all that synthetic, uh, scrubby fiber. And then it pours down into the next pump or into the next tank. And the second tank is our biofilter. And we have, uh, in the mail right now, it shipped yesterday. I confirmed that on our emails. It arrives tomorrow or Tuesday. Um, we have ceramic bio balls and these ceramic bio balls are going to harbor good aerobic nitrifying bacteria. And what that means is any nitrates or nitrites, which are going to be in the water from the duck poop, uh, is going to go in and get consumed by this bacteria that is then going to convert it to nitrogen, which is a much more bioavailable chemical for our gardens. And it filters through all these little ceramic balls, which are going to catch even more gunk. And so the water will be even clearer looking. And then it goes up through that and then drains into the final tank, which is our chemical filter. And inside there, we took charcoal. We took charcoal that we, uh, this time we actually bought the charcoal because we ran out of charcoal. <laughs> We've been creating biochar since April. And I'll talk about biochar in a moment. That's why we're talking about the charcoal here. But we ran out and we need to get this filter done. So we just bought a bag for like $9.00 of lump charcoal, hardwood lump charcoal, and we crushed it up into very fine pieces, uh, everything smaller than a quarter inch. And then we put those into mesh uh, laundry bags, zipped them shut and filled the entire bucket from the inlet at the bottom to the very top with these charcoal bags. And what's going to happen is the charcoal has, I think we talked about this in a previous episode when we were talking about homesteading 101 uh, or intro to homesteading, but just to help understand, a gram of charcoal, a gram of charcoal has the surface area of an Olympic grade tennis court. I'm going to say that again, so you know what I said. A gram of charcoal has the surface area of an Olympic grade tennis court. Crazy, right? All that surface area is in that little block of charcoal and that little block of charcoal is so porous that it can consume and absorb a ton of things. And that's what we're using it for. It's going to filter out the water. It's the last stage. It's going to absorb any chemicals. So phosphorus, potassium, uh, nitrogen, iron, anything that might be in the water. 
is going to, that got through the, the mechanical filter, got through the bio filter. It's not going to get past that charcoal. Uh, there was a, a U.S. Marine Corps survival school. They tested charcoal and it was able to absorb 97% of all E. coli in water on its own without any other, um, amendment, just the charcoal. Like that's how efficient this stuff is. So we take that and then we take all that charcoal every week or every other week, depending on how long we want to leave it in the filter. Uh, we take those bags out, we switch them and refresh uh, with fresh charcoal every week or every other week. And then we take that charcoal that was used, zip open the bag and dump it into our gardens and turn it into the gardens. For now, we're just going to hold them in a bucket in a few buckets until we have enough of it stockpiled for the fall. And then when we cut everything down, uh, and start amending the soil again, we're going to add all that charcoal from the filter. So the filter is not, there's no waste. It's a closed system. We're going to take all that charcoal and it's now become inoculated biochar. It's going to have bacteria in it. It's going to have uh, protozoa in it. It's probably gonna have some nematodes in it of some sort. And it's going to have all these minerals and all these nutrients for the plants. And biochar is this amazing thing, which Really, we should do an entire podcast on if we could. I, I can talk about char, biochar all day long. But the, the nitty gritty is biochar is charcoal that is being used in your garden and has been biologically inoculated. So that there is bacteria living in it, protozoa living in it, nematodes potentially living in it, mushrooms, mycology, mycorrhizae living in it. And these little chunks of charcoal get interspersed through your soil between five and 25% of your soil's weight is going to be biochar. And it becomes these little tiny batteries that as your roots of your plants stretch out through growth, they find these batteries, tap into them and can suck out some of that nutrients. And unlike fertilizer and compost, every time you then amend your soil by throwing wood ash on it, throwing, you know, urine on it, throwing liquid, uh, uh, compost tea on it, those batteries, the, the biochar recharges and it keeps holding it. And unlike compost and unlike liquid fertilizer, it doesn't get washed out of the soil. It stays. Charcoal can remain indefinitely. Carbon, it's pure carbon left in that charcoal. That's what it is. And carbon can't rot. It's an element. And therefore, when I've worked in archaeology, you know, for 12 years now, um, I've been on sites that are like 3,700 years old, 5,000 years old, potentially 8,000 year old sites, uh, that had charcoal that looked like it was brand new in it. When we look at traditional lodges, uh, wigwams, longhouses, palisades for longhouses and, and Ganya Gehaga villages, we see the indigenous people burning and charring the bottoms of the posts. Potentially this is because they are using fire to help chop down the trees, but also it has a second effect of the posts are less rot worthy. They're more rot resistant because it's char it's carbon back the, 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 it, the, it doesn't rot. It doesn't go away. And so it's really, really useful in your soil. Carbon in the soil is always a good thing. Uh, carbon is what some plants require to grow, but it's also what mushrooms uh, or mycorrhizae, mycology, fungi require to live. And so you add that carbon into the soil. And when you add that to the soil, you get healthier soil almost immediately. It, it gives you returns almost immediately, but it has to be inoculated first. If you just throw raw, fresh charcoal into your garden beds, it's actually going to suck up all the nutrients it can find. So you got to pack it full of nutrients and by bi and biology first, uh, 
before you put in the soil or it's going to make your soil worse at the beginning. So the problem is inoculating the charcoal. How do you get all that charcoal inoculated? You can, you know, put in buckets and pee on it. You can add it to your compost and then sift it out of the compost later and add it into the soil or leave it with the compost and just put it right in. You can, you know, put it into a bubbler uh, system with compost and make a compost tea and inoculate it with compost tea. You can do all those things. And usually they take, you know, two to two weeks to about three months to inoculate that charcoal fully and fully charge it. We believe with the filter system set up the way it is, we can inoculate this charcoal in under two weeks. I truly believe it. We're going to start off with two week intervals and then we're going to see if we can work it down to one week intervals. And then I'm going to take it uh, a couple pieces of charcoal to uh, some friends of mine who work in labs, uh, biochemists and such. And I'm going to see if they can analyze it for me and tell me if this stuff is, you know, bioavailable. Is, is this, is this a fully charged biochar or not? I'll bring them some biochar that I have in my compost that's been there since May. And I'll bring them some charcoal from the duck, uh, from the ducks filter, the duck pond filter, and put them beside each other and say, okay, these are two different charcoals. Are they the same? <laughs> and that's going to be the interesting challenge. I'm not sure how that's going to work. I got to talk to a few more biochemist friends of mine, but we're going to get there. It's, it's my big project because I really do think that biochar can solve a lot of problems in your soil. Um, we're going to be interviewing Aaron and Denise from Revitalizing Our Sustenance at Ganya Gehaga and, uh, well, a Haudenosaunee project in Six Nations near Oshwakan. Uh, where they've been growing traditional food uh, on the soil that they're on. And they had me come down and look at their soil. And one of the first things I said is you need biochar. You need charcoal in this soil. It is, it is a, it solves a lot of problems. So that's part of the beauty of this, of this filter is a, it's filtering the water and making healthy water for our ducks to swim and drink and uh, swim in and drink and eat in because they will drag their food into the water and they'll swish it around uh, to, to play in everything else while making us biochar from all their waste. And that's really the main goal there. We're trying to get this to be as, as efficient as possible. And so, yeah, that's been a big part of this whole quarter acre homestead has just been getting everything done with the ducks. Now let's talk about compost. The compost has been a big project, like huge before we grew anything in the garden, before we, you know, expanded the duck pen, before we planted anything, we were, we weren't even germinating our seeds inside yet. And I was already working on our compost. The best compost that I, we have, we have a vermicompost or a worm composting bin, um, in the homestead, we have it, but we also have pits or not pits, bins. And I'm a big believer that there's like 101 ways to compost stuff. And there's no wrong way. It just comes down to what's conducive with your lifestyle. In my lifestyle, the three best ways for me to compost stuff is to feed it to my animals and let them just poop it out for me as a fertilizer. Uh, chickens are great for that, by the way. You can feed chickens almost anything and they will turn it into very good soil very quickly. Like once a, once a week, you go in and clean out their, their chi the chicken pen and you have pretty much ready-to-rock compost or ready-to-rock soil. It's, it's incredible. The second way that I really like to do it is vermicomposting. You take scraps from the kitchen, lawn clippings, weeds, and put them into a bin full of worms that have a brown medium on top. So straw or cardboard, A, to protect them, but B, to cut down on smell and C, to um, 
you know, prevent uh, infestations of other insects, which aren't bad to have. Like if you have soldier flies in there and they're laying eggs and the maggots are getting in there, eating the, the waste too, that's fine. But the goal is to get worm castings, not feed flies. So we really, mm, really focus on trying to raise the worms. Then we get the leachate every other day. I go and check the leachate which is the liquid that runs through the soil from the plants breaking down to the food breaking down potential rainfall every once in a while. Uh, and we take that leachate and we add that to our compost tea, or I'll add that to our compost directly, or I'll just pour it on trees like our apple trees and our, our plum trees and our service berries and such. That's a big thing for me. It's just to use the leachate. And then once every couple of months, we put all the food to one side of the pen of the, of the bin and the worms kind of go all over there and eat. And then I dig down and pull out worm castings. And those worm castings are the poop from the worms breaking down all that food scrap, all that waste. And that worm casting is first off very mineral rich, but it's also very, uh, uh microbiotically, microbiotically, is that even a word? <laughs> microbiologically active. There's bacteria already in that soil. There is uh, going to be fungi already in that soil. There's going to be everything in that soil. And of course, the worms have broken down all the nutrients that came from the plants. So we take all that waste, that, that worm castings, and we can put that into a big tea bag and put that into a bubbler and make worm casting tea, which is like a form of composting tea and just water our plants with that. Or we can turn it into the soil. We can add it to the soil on a uh, top dress with it and kind of brush it in with a rake, whatever we really want to do. We can use the worm castings in a lot of different ways. Some people, when they grow plants, Rye, uh, the adventure guy, when he grows his peppers and uh, the other things that he's growing at his home, he makes the hole and throws in worm castings. It's one of the first things he throws in there so the plants have an instant access, bioavailable access to nutrients as fast as possible so they can develop a lot of root strength and root growth. And that's really important. That's really, really important. So that's what he does. We've been kind of getting ready for that because our worms have only been really, really been running for about a month and a half here. We had a vermicomposter years ago and then I just didn't keep up with it and regretted it ever since. But now it's really, really easy to do for me because it's part of our lifestyle. We've, we've integrated worm castings and worm composting or vermicomposting into our lifestyle. So whenever we have kitchen scraps, they go into a bin, it ages in there for a couple of days with more food scraps. And then it goes right out with coffee grinds and everything else right to the worms. And we feed the worms. The other way, the third way that we compost or get rid of waste on the property is thermophilic composting, which is one of the fastest ways to compost. It is one of the hard, most energy intensive. You got to be very on top of it. You got to keep an eye on it, but it makes some of the best compost in the world, in my opinion. And, and because I've been doing this the whole season, I've, I've been gone from the home for less than 48 hours in total since the beginning of the pandemic, uh, since the beginning of, uh, spring, at least, um, we've been able to really work thermophilic composting into the, into the quarter acre homestead. And so what thermophilic composting is, is hot rot or anaerobic, uh, or sorry, aerobic bacteria composting. So first and foremost, you have anaerobic, which means without air and you have aerobic, which is with air. We're using aerobic bacteria. And the main goal is to have third, uh, three parts carbon, 
to one part nitrogen in your compost. That's the best way to really keep it all in check. And so what does that all mean? Nitrogen is going to come from green matter. It's going to come from protein. It's going to come from fecal matter. It's your green recently living material. So lawn clippings, uh, weeds from the garden, kitchen scraps, roadkill, anything that's fresh and wet. Carbon rich material medium is going to be your dry dead stuff. That's going to be, you know, dead leaf litter in the fall, straw or hay, um, wood chips, sawdust, uh, charcoal is a great option, all that. And you want three times carbon to one part, three times the amount of carbon than you have nitrogen. So when I throw in, let's say a, a five gallon bucket worth of food scraps, I throw in five gallon, uh, sorry, three, uh, three, five gallon buckets worth of let's, let's make this simple. If I have a gallon of com of, uh, of food scraps from the kitchen, I'm going to have three gallons of straw ready to go in or three gallons of charcoal or three gallons of wood chip, whatever I want to use that time. And that's the first part to the equation. The reason we want that is we need the nitrogen in there to get the bacteria going and start breaking everything down and composting. But a, we don't want so much that it actually cooks off. And what can happen is when you're making compost hot rot style, it can get really hot in there. If you have a lot of nitrogen, the nitrogen kind of kicks off the heat because it's bacteria doing their thing. And as they consume, just like us, they start creating heat and it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. And the goal is it'll kill pathogens. So botulism spores, uh, salmonella or E. coli that might be in the, in the food scraps, but it's also going to uh, kill off seeds from weeds. It's not going to get rid of squash seeds, cucumber seeds and squash seeds are very, very tough, but it might kill, you know, grass seeds. It might kill dandelion seeds by getting it up to a certain temperature. It's usually about 180 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. So we're getting it to a pasteurizing temperature is the best way to describe it. We're killing pathogens and we're killing, and we're killing seeds so they can't germinate. So that when we add our compost to the soil, we're not poisoning our food and then poisoning us. And we're not producing competition for our food crops. So that's the, the big parts of why thermophilic composting is beneficial. But if you throw too much nitrogen at once, man, it, it gets really hot. And it kills all the good bacteria and the whole system shuts down. But also the nitrogen gets so hot that it starts converting into ammonia and it actually vaporizes off and you lose all the nitrogen that you need in the soil. So it's not good. So you have to turn it on a regular basis. Uh, so what I have in my compost piles and they're piles, we're not doing little, you know, like tumblers in the back garden for our occasional kitchen scraps. We're throwing in a lot of waste into these piles. Uh, we use all the duck bedding, which is going to be a straw, so carbon rich, but also full of duck poop, which is, as we already talked about, very, very good fertilizer. And it's already got a lot of nitrogen in it and everything else. So it can go right in. We've made compost piles here just out of duck bedding, duck coop bedding. That's all we needed. And we made big piles of thermophile compost that start breaking down very rapidly. That's the first thing is we throw in a lot of duck waste. We throw in a lot of duck bedding and then we throw in all of our kitchen scraps. And then I go around and I look for everything we need to pull out of the gardens, all the lawn clippings in the neighborhood. I'll take from all of our neighbors, all their kitchen scraps. I take everything. I make piles that are like six feet tall that are like three feet wide or four feet wide and four feet uh, long and then six feet tall. 
And that mass also allows heat to generate because it's going to be thermal. It's going to be thermally dense. Heat can't just dissipate into the atmosphere. So it has to heat up, but get a compost thermometer. If you're going to do this, so you can keep an eye on it. If it's below 130 degrees Fahrenheit, turn the compost, wet it down again, get some water in there. And then if it gets above hundred and let's say 60, turn the compost again. We want to turn it on a regular basis. So I'm turning compost approximately once every two days, sometimes three days, which is just fine for me. I got to go out and feed the ducks anyways. And the duck pen, the, the food forest is surrounded with three bins of compost, which are made of just old pallets that we found on sides of roads, found where people were dumping them and we just took them. Uh, all that kind of stuff. We've, we built these bins and we just fill them to the brim. And then that's one, we don't keep adding. And that's the one thing that people keep making mistakes. If I had a few friends now come by and they bring their food scraps and they just toss it onto one of my piles, I'm like, no, no, no. It, it, when you do thermophilic composting, it's best to bulk it up and get all of it done in one go. Don't keep adding to it because then different bacteria that have already started doing their job have to stop and let other bacteria do their job. And they don't like doing that. They compete with each other and it ends up just kind of stopping the compost process. It doesn't continue the composting process. It stops the composting process. And so don't do that. There's some really cool articles out there on the actual biology of a compost pile where there's like 17 different types of bacteria, fungi, um, protozoas, all these things that are doing their jobs at certain stages. When the compost is really hot, you have certain nitrifying bacteria and certain thermophilic bacteria or ther yeah, thermophilic heat loving bacteria doing their job. And then when they can no longer consume what they can consume, the compost cools down. And as it cools down, in comes the molds, in come the yeasts and in come the other fungi. And they do their thing along with other bacteria and nematodes and, and protozoa that start consuming and breaking down. And that's the aging process of compost. So hot rock compost, we get it hot for about two weeks to three weeks uh, straight. And then we only turn it once a week after that just to make sure it's still being aerated and air can get in there and it's doing its thing. That's all based on my own experience. Your mileage will vary. So you have to learn how to really work with a thermophilic compost pile. You gotta, it's, it's something you can't just read about. You kind of have to play with it and figure it out. Is it too dry? That could be a cause. Is it too wet? That could be a cause. Is it not enough nitrogen? That could be a cause. Is, is there not enough carbon? That could be the cause. So you got to constantly tweak it and mess around with it. I've been doing thermophilic composting for eight years, nine years, and I'm still learning. I'm always, always learning about compost. But in that process, this year, our goal was let's make 300 pounds of compost. Let's make 300 pounds so that we can turn it into all of our beds and we can make all of our beds nice and rich next year because we're growing things like corn and sunflowers and they suck up a lot of nutrients out of the ground. And so often if you grow corn like three, four years in a row, you'll notice that that fifth year, the corn's really stunted. That's because it sucked up all the nitrogen it can. It sucked up all the potassium it can. It sucked up all the phosphorus it can. And the soil is pretty much barren now. And so we figured after two years of growing corn, we're going to add some compost. And after two years of growing sunflowers, we're going to add some compost. And we just need 300 pounds to do all the beds that we have. We have seven, uh, we have seven garden beds. And 
we ended up with 1200 pounds. <laughs> Four times the amount of compost we were expecting. We forecasted that we would have 300 pounds of compost. And as we speak, there's 1200 pounds in my backyard. So we are preparing to build new beds in the fall. And we're going to expand our garden and put in more beds and grow more food next year. And many of those beds will be strictly just compost with biochar in it and, and a little bit of minerals thrown in uh, and all that kind of stuff. So it's really fascinating how quickly you can build up compost if you just try. And we throw in everything. My rule is if it was ever alive, it can go in the compost. So some people have rules of compost where you don't throw in dairy and fats and you don't throw in animal meat or fish meat or anything like that. We do. One of the first things I did was uh, when the fishing season began, uh, the, the spearing season, we talked about indigenous food systems, the spring spearing, we put out a call to all band members in our community that we have buckets at our driveway that you can throw your fish carcasses in and your guts, your skins, anything you don't want to eat from the fish put in that bin. In a single night, we got 98 pounds of fish guts and carcasses. And we turned that into a lot of our compost bin, uh, into a lot of our gardens just immediately, but we still had a ton left over. And so I actually sealed them all anaerobically to try and get it really gross, really fast. So I sealed it in an old cooler for about a month. It's not a pleasant experience, but it's something that I feel is important to do, uh, to really get it to break down fast. And then we dumped it into our compost bin, uh, into the bed of our compost with a bunch of charcoal underneath it and a bunch of straw to keep it from leaching into the water, into the groundwater. And then we covered that with straw and duck bedding and kept on adding and adding and adding. That's how we started our compost. And then anytime I find a dead animal that is on the side of the road, like a roadkill, I pick it up. And if I can make use of it, I make use of it. Like I'll cut the claws off to make it in necklaces. I'll take the skull, whatever I can, but everything else goes in the compost. And we just keep adding everything. We throw in spoiled milk. We throw in cheese, all the eggs from the ducks that are either broken or rotting, or they were, something's wrong when we're incubating, they go right in the compost. Everything goes into the compost. And I'll hear people say, what about animals? We have a bear and her two cubs who live less than 350 yards from my garden. They walk through my yard. They've never touched my compost. They never dug up any of my garden beds that had fish in it. Never. I've had skunks and raccoons in my home, not in my home, but on my property. They never dug into it because when you make a big garden, uh, sorry, a big compost bin, a huge compost pile, the smell is absorbed by all that carbon. That's one of the benefits of a three to one ratio of carbon to nitrogen. The fish guts, the, the, the roadkill, that's your nitrogen, the charcoal, the straw, the, the leaf litter, the wood chips, that's your carbon. And it's going to absorb that smell. No one smells my compost ever. Even when I turn it fresh right then and there and it's steaming and it looks so gross. No one, none of my neighbors, I have a neighbor less than 50 yards, any direction from my home, any direction from my, from my compost, except for North. And none of them know about the compost. Like they're aware that I compost, but they don't know when I turn it. They don't know if it's smelly that day because of the carbon. I've been talking about compost for like 18 minutes now. <laughs> I can talk about it all day long. It's what soil health is one of my biggest passions and it's what makes things grow well. It's 
it's really, really, really important to me is to, to make sure that the soil is strong and healthy. So yeah, that's, that's compost. The last real update on the quarter acre homestead with, uh, with, without getting into the crops, which we'll get into in a minute is our quail. So we got, uh, back in, I think June, it was either late May or early June. Uh, we got a call from a friend who had a problem because their, their neighbor or one of their friends has a dozen or 20 quail, Coturnix quail, which are a Japanese breed of quail. And the problem is they lived in a, in a townhouse where there was a no pets allowed rule. And so they were, they were busted. They, they had these quail. Somebody did an inspection, found the quail and said, okay, you have two weeks to get rid of them or you got to leave this place. And so we took the quail. Um, they had bumblefoot. A lot of them had bumblefoot. I think it was like 80% of them had bumblefoot. And so we had to treat them. Some of them, it was too badly infected that we actually had to, you know, dispatch them. We had to put them down. And I've always liked quail meat. And so this was not a problem to me. We, we killed those ones that were too badly infected, uh, that we couldn't save them. They were, they were, their legs were red hot. Like you'd touch them. They felt warmer than the air around you. And so, and you could see that they were swollen up and they couldn't walk on their feet. Right. And so we put those ones down. We treated the others with an iodine bath or Epsom salts. Depend. We switched off every couple of days. We do instead of Epsom salts, we do iodine. If we didn't do iodine, we're doing Epsom salts to try and help draw the, it's basically like a big cyst. And we're trying to help draw it out and soften it enough that we can get in there and pop it off and then pack the wound and then dress them. And they'd walk around on these vet wrap bandages for a couple of days. And then we take that off and they, they were healed. And in the process, they started laying eggs that were fertile. And we had the incubator from the ducks and we started raising quail eggs. And we've only had three successfully hatched because the original incubator that we had for the ducks was a little giant incubator. And I'm not trying to talk smack about the little giants. I, I, I know that a lot of people have had a lot of luck with them. We did not. Uh, the incubator worked fine until literally the day of our ducks hatching. If you watched the hatch watch, which is a thing we're doing every year now, it's an annual thing when we have, when we get incubating eggs and it comes up to the days of hatching, we will be live streaming the hatching on Patreon. And for school groups that pay and all that kind of stuff that want to watch with their students and the eggs hatch and everybody gets to watch. But during that, we would start hearing this like, and that's because the fan was actually coming loose. <coughs> there's a, there's a, a warm air um, convection system in the little giants and most good incubators where it has a fan that has a heating elements around it, that it blows the warm air everywhere equally. And then you have an egg turner inside that moves the eggs back and forth to make sure they don't get uh, a yolk or an embryo really stuck to one side of the egg. Uh, you have to turn your egg. So an automatic egg turner is great. The little giant, uh, we had it going for the, just one hatching session, like one incubation session and it broke down. It just broke down. And so I pulled out the heating element. I pulled out the fan. I got a seed starter mat and put that under the egg turner. And then we got a bunch of quail eggs from our quail. And I was like, okay, cool. We'll use this system. And it didn't work really well. Um, the seed starter mat, I'm sure, was doing the best it could. And the incubator system was doing the best it could, I'm sure. But it just wasn't. Like, we're putting in 15, 20 eggs. 
and getting one that hatched and it would have deformities. And these deformities were not genetic deformities. These were deformities due to poor incubation process. It was fluctuating temperatures and fluctuating humidity. And so we bit the bullet. And like, you know what? This was a hundred something dollar incubator system. Plus we had to buy another, we had to buy an egg turner. And then for the quail eggs, we had to get a different system to hook into the egg turner. So we've dropped like 200 something dollars on this damn incubator and we can't get it to work right. And so I went online and I ordered one from China. So the little giants are American made. They're proudly made in the United States of America. And we got a one off of like wish or something like that. And it came, the, the, the little giants made of styrofoam, which is good and insulative, but it's not durable. It, everything you screw, you put screws into styrofoam. Tell me how strong those are going to be. So the, that's why the fans kept getting loose was the screws were coming, were working their way loose. This one is a Lexan plastic of some sort. And it's got a really good digital thermometer and it came with an egg turner already built in. So that just arrived uh, a week ago. We put our quail eggs in that were getting ready to hatch. They came out and we've had three hatches, two fatalities uh, because of birth, uh, because of birth defects, uh, because of them being in the old incubator. So now that we've got the new incubator and the one that survived also has defects, he's got curl toe syndrome, which is his feet have curled right up uh, when he hatched or they hatched. And we have to put orthopedic booties on him, them uh, made of cardboard and veterinary tape to keep their feet, their toes flat and stretched out so they can actually walk on them. And he's also, they've got uh, leg strength issues. So we actually have to do like um, <laughs> physiotherapy for this one little quail pult. And it's like this really heartbreaking thing, but it's like really, like we hatched this bird. We want to make sure this bird lives a long, healthy life or, or as long as quail live, which is between two to three years max. Um, and they're, 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 they're meat birds to us and they are egg birds. We have friends of ours who, uh, traditional diets include cooked quail eggs. They're from, uh, South Korea or they're from China, Taiwan, et cetera, who are friends of ours. And growing up, they ate quail eggs and they don't have that access as much to fresh ethically raised quail eggs. So the ones that are not incubated, we give to them. And then the ones that we want to keep incubated, we're, we've been trying to raise because we want to produce more quail, uh, to replace the ones that we eat. Cause on average, a single quail will feed one adult, one meal. And it's like a, I'm a big guy. If you haven't seen me before, I am basically the closest a human being can be to a woolly mammoth. I'm a big man. And a single quail feeds me like that's how dense the meat is on these birds. And it's one of the best tasting meats on the planet, in my opinion. Uh, and so right now we have them, the adults in a large cage outside with a wire floor. And I don't like that, like a, a, a cage floor. I want them to be just like our ducks as open and free moving as possible. So that's one of the projects we're beginning this week as we've built a coop for them. And now we're building a pen that is going to be outdoors for them to be able to walk around, do their thing. We're also going to be building a quail tractor, which is a little pen and coop that you can move every day with wheels. And we're going to have that on our, on our lawn next spring. So they can be munching grass and picking seeds off the plants and we can move them every day to a new batch and they're going to fertilize our lawn for us. I don't believe in lawns, but this is a place that we're kind of renting right now. And I don't get to uh, get to say on whether we have a lawn or not. So that's one thing that's, and we're going to be talking about that in a moment as well. But uh, that's one way that I figure, you know what, I can at least make this yard healthy instead of it just being 
half dead grass. Uh, and then eventually we'll be able to scoop up the, the, the bedding from their coop. We'll be able to scoop up the, the bedding from their pen, all the, the flooring from their pen once a month and throw that into the compost or throw that into the garden and it'll become fertilizer for us as well. So the quail are a meat source. They are our only meat birds. We don't have any chickens here. We don't have any turkeys here uh, or any pheasants here and definitely no peacocks or guinea fowl to begin to say that either. Uh, we just have ducks, four geese and these quail. And the goal is to start raising more and more quail year round so that we can have easy accessible meat all the time. I believe it's estimated that you would have about on average for a household of two, 400 birds a season a year, uh, 400 quail would be consumed if you wanted to have it as a steady meat source instead of having to go out and get chicken, uh, go and buy beef or raise larger animals. You can live off pretty much quail and your garden. It's a really easy way to do it. And they're very easy to raise within six weeks. They're ready to ha uh, lay eggs or be eaten. So they're very fast growing birds. Um, and I like them. They're, they're interesting birds. This one that's got the curled toe syndrome that we're dealing with may actually never get eaten. It may end up becoming because Emily kind of is enamored with them uh, and loves them because she's done so much work to try and take care of him. So we may not end up eating that bird. They, if it turns out to be a male, he might become our roux for the flock and take care of that stuff that way. And if it's a hen, we'll keep her and let her lay eggs and maybe potentially keep her in the house as a pet. We don't know yet. Uh, but yeah, that's pretty much everything regarding the homestead, uh, the, the quarter acre homestead project outside of the crops. And we'll talk about the crops in a moment. Why is it called the quarter acre homestead? The reason that is we purposely made it a quarter acre in size. The, uh, and the reason we made it on purpose that size is that's something that we could reasonably maintain, but also... That's the size of the average Canadian suburban lawn. So if you live in, in Toronto or in the, the GTA, or you live in America, in the United States of America, your lawn is approximately one quarter of an acre. And so what we're trying to do with this is encourage people to kill their grass, kill your lawn as crime pays botany doesn't uh, famously says, kill your lawn and make it into a garden, grow food, make it the grass is the number one crop grown in North America, grass, and no one uses it for anything. So get rid of it, grow crops that are going to be good for you. They're going to be calorie dense, nutritious, all that kind of beautiful stuff. You can do that in any quarter acre of lawn. And that's why we've made a quarter acre homestead. We are raising ducks, geese, quail, and then we're growing a food forest orchard we have mycol um, uh, we have mushrooms growing in our garden that we're consuming, and we're going to get into the crops in just a moment. We have a ton of food that we are growing on a quarter acre. We have an estimated this year we have an estimate that if we included eating all of our birds, which we won't be because most of them are egg layers, <coughs> we have an estimated seven thousand pounds of food growing on a quarter acre of land, and it didn't break the bank. It didn't break the bank whatsoever, and that includes a pond. <clears throat> that includes a pond that includes two separate coops, one for waterfowl and one for quail that includes a huge garden that includes compost bins, everything, everything talking about crops. Let's get into that. And just as a reminder for our patrons, if you, uh, if you are on our Patreon and you you're listening to this right now, a lot of what we've talked about, you can see 
by going to our Patreon. We've put updates on there. There's a few videos showing the filter that we built, the pond that we have, the ducks, the duck coop, everything that we built, because a lot of this was funded through Patreon. A lot of the money that's gone into this stuff, we we just dropped like $600 three days ago for the new filter and the ceramic bio filter medium. Uh, all to be uh, to to be delivered. We we haven't been able to do any of this stuff without our patrons. So I really want to give that shout out. I really want to keep mentioning that because we've only had a few views on the on the channel of those videos, and I really want to make sure that our patrons are seeing where their money goes and what's being put towards and why this is happening and and how we do things here and to to help kind of give back to everybody who's been helping support us through this whole time. So anyways, uh, let's get into the crops that we're growing. We are growing a crap ton of things, a crap ton. Like we are growing a minimum four plants per garden bed, four species. Some of the garden beds have like six or seven. Some have like 10. Um, we have the Eastern agricultural complex garden bed, which is a uh, hopness or, uh, also known as groundnut, uh, Apios Americana. And that's a, you know, a biennial or biannual. So every two years, um, crop, but we're actually gonna leave it for like two or three years. And it's, um, these tubers with a vine that grows out and the, the tubers develop as the plant photosynthesizes and collects energy. The, the tubers develop and develop and it takes a while. It's not, a annual food. It's not even a, per, I wouldn't even argue that's a perennial food per se, but it's more like every few years you get a food crop out of it. And it's a good food crop. It's, it's very rich in a lot of good minerals and nutrients, but more importantly, it is helping fix your soil. And so that's a really good reason to have it. It can kind of become like the beans in the three sisters garden because it can climb up certain plants and creep across the ground. The other plants that we're growing in there are members of the lamb's quarter family. And we have a lot of members of Chernopodium or the, the goosefoot family in our garden. I'm a big supporter of the goosefoot family. They're very easy crops to grow. There's a lot of varieties in them. They're edible in multiple stages of development. They're a really good, really good food crop. Um, in the EAC or Eastern Agricultural Complex garden uh, bed, we're growing Hozantle which is my pronunciation of the Aztec, quote unquote, Aztec red spinach. It's a member of the lamb's quarter family. Its leaves are edible. Its flowers can be steamed and treated like broccoli. Uh, and then the seeds can be gathered and ground into flour, or they can be added almost like uh, poppy seeds to, to cakes or breads or biscuits or whatnot. So there's a, and there's a lot of nutrients in these plants, <clears throat> very high in iron very, very high in riboflavin, very high in niacin, uh, things that both us and the ducks and geese need. So these are actually the leaves of whenever the plants kind of get out of control in that garden, they start to choke each other out. I start thinning them and throwing them right into the duck pen. And the geese denude those plants, like de defoliate those stalks within seconds. And I'll bring in like a bushel of them and they're gone in minutes, maximum, like five minutes tops. And that thing will be just stocks that I can then throw in the compost or let them just walk over and poop on and break down themselves. <clears throat> and then of course we're eating them and then the flowers develop and we steam and cook the flowers. And then we eat that like broccoli. And then we have the seeds that we ha harvest in the fall. And then we just take a small handful and scatter it back on the ground. And the next spring it grows back. It's, it's very, very dependable food source. It doesn't require a lot of water. doesn't really require any real care. 
which is one of the reasons I like it and why our ancestors, the indigenous people of the Eastern Agricultural Complex, liked them. Another member that's in there with them, and I'm trying to keep them from cross-pollinating as best as I can. Uh, that's really the only work I have here is trying to keep all these goosefoot members from cross-pollinating, becoming some frankenplant, <clears throat> which may not be a bad thing at the end of the day. But anyways, is a white seed lamb's quarter, which is an indigenous plant that was one of the main food crops of the Eastern Agricultural Complex prior to corn. This was the main grain of indigenous people in the Eastern Agricultural Complex before corn. And trying to like selectively craw, uh, like grow it and look for the ones that have the biggest seeds compared to their husks and all that kind of stuff. And then growing those seeds again next year and growing that out. That's been the project of the last two years I've been working on is the white seed lamb's quarter developing it into what it used to be when it was a main crop of Proto-Algonquian groups, Proto-Iroquoian groups, all the Eastern Agricultural Mound Builder Complex, Mississippian Complex cultures prior to corn. That's what I've been working on here. Other uh, members of the Goosefoot family that we have are Amaranth. Uh, we have a lot of Amaranth. The, the giant Amaranth is one of the main ones that we have. We also have wild, feral, just lamb's quarters growing all over the place. And those are weeds in our garden, but we eat them. So we just kind of, it's kind of this relationship of like, we know they're taking nutrients from our other plants. And so we focus our harvesting on those throughout most of the growing season and we eat them. And again, we feed them to our ducks as well. <clears throat> the ducks are obsessed with it. It's kind of funny that a plant called a goose foot is the number one favorite snack of the geese. I just want to say that it's get that on the record that they love it. They, they're obsessed with it. It's like their favorite thing for me to bring into the garden, uh, into the, into the duck pen for them. They, they love it. And I love it too. I'll put into smoothies. I'll stir fry with it. I'll treat it like spinach is really what I do. We treat it just like spinach. And so it'll be in, in smoothies. I'll dehydrate it and use that in like soup thickener later on in the fall and winter, all that kind of stuff. We use lamb's quarter quite a bit in the household. And we gather the seeds from those too. And we'll get this like giant like yield. Last year we pulled in just over five pounds of seed from just the wild lamb's quarter that's growing in the area. And then we got in like seven pounds of the horizontal. And then we had like four pounds, not as much of the white seed lamb's quarter, but now we're growing them again. We're getting even more of it and it's growing really well. <clears throat> the amaranth, it's related just like all these members of the goosefoot, they're related to things like chia, amaranth, quinoa, all those seeds that you know of as like health foods are North and South American crops that have been around for thousands of generations and were propagated and cultivated by indigenous people. And so when you're trying to grow food that is going to be dependable and doesn't need as much, uh, watering and doesn't need as much, uh, fertilizer and all that kind of stuff, the best thing to look at is what were indigenous people growing prior to corn across the Americas or with corn or everything else. And so that was the, one of the first things we started really working on was the lamb's quarter family, the, the goosefoot family. Chernopodium is, I believe, the scientific genus. Anyways, we're growing Ganawage pole beans from Ganawage, uh, Ganyagehaga territory or <coughs> Kanawaki Mohawk pole beans, as a lot of non-Indigenous people will say. Um, and they are producing fast. Like they came out 
a week before uh, I checked my timeline on social media a couple of days ago and we got the Kanawage pole beans four days ago, five days ago, they were already ready to pick. And then I checked and it was yesterday that our Indian, uh, Kentucky rattlesnake pole beans, which are like the more popular green bean variety. They only were ready to harvest yesterday. So there's like a, there, these Ganawage pole beans are growing huge bean pods, make delicious green beans. They're a little hairy, little hairy on the stem. So we may actually just split them up and all that kind of stuff. And I'm so enamored by them. I'm actually going to let the rest of the ones that are growing not go to green bean. Cause we got like 10 pounds of green beans in the freezer already from last year that we haven't tapped into yet. Um, so I'm going to let the rest of these ones that are on the vine grow to their full potential. And they're going to become seed for growing next year, but also, so I have soup beans this winter. So I'll have dried beans this winter to have, and it's going to be coming from the Ganawage pole beans. Really excited that we're actually going to be able to get a winter yield of beans in one growing season from just a small single garden bed. We planted, uh, five blueberry bushes, high, bu- high bush blueberry, and they are all producing berries. They've been producing blueberries for about f- two weeks now, three weeks now. And we've been gathering them and freezing them, f- gathering them and freezing them. And the plan is to eventually get some of the seeds out and stratify those just like I'm doing with the Saskatoons and the apple seeds and the, and the sweet cherries and everything, uh, which we'll talk about in a moment, <clears throat> but we want to save some of those seeds so we can grow even more blueberry bushes next year. Cause I'm a berry fiend. Like I've got the diet of a black bear, fish, meat, berries, and roots. That's what I love to eat what I loved. I'll even eat grubs just like a bear. <laughs> I love, I love the bear diet. If I can go on the black bear diet, I, that's something I should develop is the black bear diet. Everybody's doing like the paleo diet, the keto diet. I'm going to do the black bear diet, eat everything and be a monster while you do it. <laughs> so we got blueberries for all at this point. It's doing really, really well. We have two garden beds of corn. And it's uh, Anishinaabek calico flint corn from Bear Island, First Nation. And it's um, beautiful, beautiful corn. I've been growing it for about five years now. Yeah, yeah, five years now I've been growing that corn in different locations across where I live. I didn't have a place to grow it here where I lived until last year. So I was growing at different places prior to that uh, in my neighborhood kind of thing. And they produce amazing solid flint corn. Flint corn you can make into hominy, which is a nixtamalized corn <clears throat> that is puffy and soft and easily digestible and able to be bioavailable nutrients to us, unlike modern uh, sweet corn. And when we nixtamalize, we can then use it for corn soup. We can also grind it and make it into cornmeal and make cornbread and dumplings and all that kind of stuff with it. It's a beautiful grain. Uh, it requires a lot of, ca- uh, a lot of nutrients from the soil, which is why we have to constantly build compost and create biochar and add fish to the soil and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's because of the corn. It is a very, the only crops that I grow that are as nutrient uh, dependent or more is tobacco and uh, sunflowers. And the sunflower is not as much as the corn. Tobacco is actually even worse than the corn. Um, 
So it takes a lot of energy out of the soil. So we have to put a lot of energy back into the soil. The other cool thing with our corn is the last, since 2012, when I started growing corn on this property to begin with, and then stopped for a long while because I was requested by the property owner who who is a family member of mine to stop growing corn here because they didn't want it on the lawn that they really liked. Um, but then we started growing again last year here and we're seeing the same thing. And that is corn smut. Corn smut is a parasitic fungi that infests the cob of the corn and sucks up the nutrients that the corn cob and the corn kernels are supposed to get. And then it ruptures, it breaks out and becomes this mushroom growing out of the corn cob and you can pick it. And it's very, very common in Mexican cuisine. I'm not going to try and say the word that is a Nahuatl language word for it. Um, I'm not good at speaking Nahuatl language. And so I don't want to, uh, or as a lot of anglicized people will say, Nahuatl, <laughs> it's the Aztec language. Um, it's Nahuatl, which I can't even say that properly, but I'm saying it better than Nahuatl. So um, same thing as when you say, see the word Adelatl, it's Adelat, Adelat, not Adelatl. But anyways, um, I'm not going to try to say the word that is a Mexican Nahuatl language word uh, for corn smut because I don't want to butcher the language any worse than I already do, but it is a very nutritious fungi because it's absorbing all the nutrients that the corn is supposed to get and converting it into something that is more bioavailable. Mushrooms are much more bioavailable for us to consume. That's why people use chaga fungus and people use reishi mushroom and all that kind of stuff is it makes medicines, it makes nutrients more bioavailable. And so Corn smut is a very, very good sustainable agriculture concept is some people just purposely grow corn smut on their corn and our soil has it in there. Last year, we got a bunch of corn smut and the years before I got a ton of corn smut this year, because we're growing more corn, I'm expecting more corn smut and it should be happening, you know, in the next week and a half, two weeks, we should start seeing corn smut. And I check the corn every day, basically as soon as it starts to tassel out, which is the, um, the male part of the plant that produces pollen. And then the corn cob area is the female part of the plant that will absorb the, uh, that'll take the pollen and start creating a seed, which is the corn cob, um, or fruit, which has got seeds, which are the corn kernels. Um, and that's when I start checking. As soon as I see those tassels, A, I'm checking my cobs to make sure the cobs are healthy. And B, I'm checking for corn smut so I can start harvesting it and cooking with it. I'll stir fry it and make tacos. I will make tortilla wraps of every kind, shape or form, burritos, everything with corn smut. I'll make stir fries with corn smut. I'll make chili with corn smut. Everything. I, I love corn smut. It's a great, great fungi to have in your life. And if it's happening naturally in your garden, you might as well make use of it because it's going to be there and you can't really stop it. Um, along with other fungi, we're growing oyster mushrooms in buckets, uh, blue oyster mushrooms, which I call uh, Eric Shroom instead of Eric Bloom from the Blue Oyster Cult. And we've had four flushes since April. We had two flushes in the house when I was growing it inside. And we've had two flushes now outside, which means it's time to break the bucket up. Uh, basically, it's a, it's a five-gallon pail with a lid that I drilled quarter inch holes all around and then filled with duck straw or bedding from the ducklings, which was aspen shavings, wood shavings that I then poured boiling hot water on to sterilize uh, a, because I don't want other fungi taking over this bed or this bin. Uh, I want it to be sterile environments so that the, the, the oyster mushroom could take it over and colonize it, which it, it did. But also 
ducks can carry E. coli and salmonella, and that can transfer into your fungi. So boiling hot water soaked overnight, then you strain the aspen shavings out of that, which is going to be very stinky because there's duck poop in all that. And then you take all that and put it into the five gallon bucket in layers. So you're going to put a thick layer on the bottom and crumble your oyster mushroom spawn or your mushroom mycelium really, and sprinkle that over the bottom on top of that layer. And then you put more bedding on top of that and then or wood shavings on, and then you just keep layering up and up and up and up to the very top and then cap it with more wood shavings and seal the lid. And what's going to happen is you have drain holes that are like one eighth of an inch at the bottom of the bucket. And then all along the walls of the bucket, you have quarter inch holes and the oyster mushrooms burst and they come out of that. They start really small and they just overnight just become these massive mushrooms that are so delicious. And the first yield we ate with steak and onions. We just cooked up, sauteed the oyster mushrooms and had that with steak and onions. And then the second time we added it to pasta sauce and the third flush and this fourth flush, we picked the mushrooms and dehydrated them. And now I'm ready to take the bucket apart, break that up and make five more buckets of oyster mushrooms. So we have five oyster mushroom buckets growing. Two we'll keep, three we're giving away to friends. One of them is Ride the Adventure Guy. One of them is my buddy Chris. And the other one is our good friend Dell. And then if we have any more buckets after that, I'm, I'm aiming for five, but there's a chance where we're going to get, we're going to need like seven or eight. I'll be giving them to Nikki and anybody else that's part of the Canadian Bushcraft crew that uh, want some oyster mushrooms to grow. We also have a bed from wood chip on the ground near the duck pen that is wine cap or King Strafaria mushroom. <clears throat> We've had two beds built so far over the last two years and neither have produced oyster, uh, sorry, wine caps yet. And I'm holding out hope because they're pretty durable and easy to grow fungi. Uh, and they are a late summer mushroom. So I'm not too, I'm going to get worried come September that these beds aren't working. Uh, and we've gotten the fungi spawn from two different sources. One was North Spore and the other was another company from here in Canada. So it's not that it's the company's fault. I feel like I might be doing something wrong, but I don't think I am. And what the beds are is you put down wood chip and then I put down straw. And then the straw is where I put all the spawn and I put a little bit more straw on top of that. And then I cover the whole bed with thick layer wood chips, about four inches thick of wood chip. And you just keep it damp and shady and protected from the environment. <clears throat> and the mushrooms just kind of colonize that area and they start popping out pretty much anywhere that there's wood chip, which is most of our garden. Uh, we used the chip drop app and got a few loads from a guy, a local arborist. And then a friend of ours, Ben is an arborist as well. And whenever his company that he's working for is working near my place, they need to dump off wood chip somewhere. So they bring it to us and we've put in approximately four and a half tons, metric tons of wood chip into our garden, surrounding our garden beds, lining the trails all over the property. All of the orchard has like six to seven inches thick of wood chip. And this is for several reasons. First off, to make a spawning ground for those wine caps is one of the first reasons we want to do it. Second reason is to suppress weeds in the garden beds. Third reason was to protect the soil as best as possible. A, from uh, poor drainage, from compaction, from drying out in the sun when we had drought periods in the summertime here, we had real long dry spells. And so we wanted to make sure that the soil stayed wet so that plants and our crops could grow. Uh, but it also creates humus because our soil is very compacted, dense clay. Um, and we wanted it to become more bioactive and therefore the mush, the, 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 the wood mulch 
breaks down and becomes humus. It becomes organic matter in the soil. And then earthworms come up through the clay, bring some of the wood chip down with them, digest and start turning the soil and breaking it up and building the soil for us. And also it just makes it a cleaner environment to work in. There's a lot less weeds to deal with. There's a lot less debris to deal with. Uh, and it's safer soil. Uh, it's less likely to get eroded by the ducks pooping and getting everything wet and spraying their fecal matter everywhere. And of course, whenever it rains, all that fecal matter washes down through the wood chips, makes a f- makes a fresh amount of nutrients in the soil, and we're building soil as we go. And that's really important to me. So the wood chip has been another part of the whole process. And of course, again, it's growing medium for our wine cap mushrooms and giving them a better chance to survive and thrive. We have carrots growing. Uh, we actually have to thin them every few days now because they're growing so big. Right now they're about thumb thick, but I, I'm that kind of guy that just throws a ton of seed on the ground and then doesn't thin them until they're getting developed, until they're, until they're quite developed. And then I start pulling out every other carrot and they're about pinky thick to thumb thick. Makes nice baby carrots to put into stir fries and soups and everything, or it's just a lunch snack. And then that allows the other carrots more room to grow and get bigger. And so that's kind of how I thin is I, I thin and eat. That's really how I thin stuff. I thin stuff so I can get thicker is the best way to describe it. Uh, we have a ton of tomatoes. Uh, again, I threw in like a handful, like a big heaping handful of a bunch of varieties of like Roma tomatoes, beefsteak tomatoes, all kinds of tomatoes into one big garden bed, let them get out of control. And then I started staking them and trellising them so they can get tall and grow vertical. And then we bury, not bury, but mulch around them with duck bedding. So there's a lot of nutrients in the soil so that they don't have to compete too much with each other. We have peppers. I went to a garden center near the end of the growing season, which is my favorite time to go to garden centers because they're trying to get rid of things because they're going to die and they were a waste of money to them at that point. And we end up getting, um, two habanero plants and three Italian sweet peppers. And those we then, they were beaten to crap. They were sun bleached. They were wilted. They were weak looking. We looked for the healthiest ones there. And the owner of the nursery was so felt so bad that they were selling them for two for a dollar. And we ended up getting five plants. Like, you know what? Give me like three bucks for all five plants. Oh, geez. Okay. Yeah. So we took all five plants and then my good friend Keith stopped by with five Thai dragon chilies. So we have, uh, 10 pepper plants or chili and pepper plants in the front yard in bins, uh, in, 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 um, planters instead of going into the garden. And that's going to let the soil get really warm because it's getting exposed to the sun, both above and below. We keep them really well hydrated. The first thing I did was I mixed, uh, a nutrients mix into the soil. And that was a lot of duck straw bedding and wood chips from the babies with some sand and some really cheap garden soil from the garden center. Uh, I went to a big box garden center and I got their cheapest like dollar a bag bags. It's not good soil. It's not. But what I then did was I amended it and the amendments were cheap amendments that work really well. So I took, um, Epsom salts, which is magnesium. And I ground that into a fine powder in a coffee grinder, in a herb grinder. And we added that to the soil with Tums, like Tums, the, the, the antacid, which is high in calcium and magnesium and calcium have to be together so the plants can uptake the calcium. They need magnesium to help them absorb calcium, which is important for good root growth, good stem development, but most importantly for fruit development and health. So we top dress with calcium and magnesium once a month. 
on these plants. We started them with a heavy amount of it in the soil. And we also added urine, uh, which is very human urine is about, uh, six, uh, times more rich in nitrogen than is potassium or, or phosphorus. Very, very, very nitrogen rich, which helps with root development and leaf development. These were wilted, yellowed plants. I wanted them to get as bright green as possible and absorb as much sun and photosynthesize and get strong. So we did that. I would take wood ash from our fires and I was taking urine and I was taking calcium tablets, the, 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 uh, Tums tablets, grinding them into a powder, taking, uh, Epsom salts, grinding that into a powder, mixing that all into a bucket. Um, and then filling that basically peeing in that all day long, which is going to be a lot of nitrogen, but also a lot of salt, which we've got to be careful about. So we dilute and fill it to the very top with rainwater. And then that I was putting into watering cans and watering them on a regular basis. Uh, every two days I was watering them with that. And now I just top dress with a little bit of wood ash and a little bit of calcium powder and a little bit of magnesium powder. And that is really all I do now for these pepper plants. And they are bushy. And Ryan got a few Thai peppers, uh, Thai dragons from Keith as well. And his are even better looking than mine are. He's like, Rye, uh, I really wish he was here right now for the podcast, but he really went full chemist mode and started taking care of his plants in, cause he, and it, the way he described it is he's like, I'm growing, he's growing less than we are. And so he can put more effort into the ones he has. I'm growing bulk. He's growing quality. I'm growing quantity. And so he could put a lot of love and effort and put the amount of kelp meal that he has and bone meal that he has. And, and, um, what's it called? Uh, worm castings and mix that in the right ratios and check the plants and check soil pH and all that kind of stuff. I'm just going until the leaves are green and healthy. And then I just keep them green and healthy and then cut back on nitrogen when they start developing flowers. So the night, cause so it's not going to put too much energy into making leaves. And I increase the calcium and the potassium at that point, which is wood ash and Tums and Epsom salts for the magnesium to help produce the fruit and make them healthy. That's all I'm doing. He's going full, full chemist mode and studying these plants and making sure they're perfect, perfect, perfect. Um, I've only done one pruning on my pepper plants all season. He's like carefully taking any suckers away and all that kind of stuff. I haven't done that. I'm starting that right now with my tomatoes though. We have, as I said, we got tons. I think we have like 60 tomato plants in a single garden bed. It's insane. Absolutely insane. Um, we have a dozen apple trees in the orchard. We have ambrosia, Macintosh, and another one whose name has escaped me. We have another one. We have Macintosh, ambrosia, and something to do with honey crisp. I think it is a honey crisp. Yeah. And then we have my grandma, my great grandmother's apple tree. And then a couple apple trees we grew, we planted last year that survived being attacked by squirrels. So we have a dozen apple trees in total. We have quince trees, uh, which are these, one of the oldest, the oldest cultivated fruit tree in Eurasia. Uh, we have two of those and we had three hascaps, all three hascaps failed. Uh, none of them survived, which was really distraught, like made me distraught because they're considered like the survivalists or the doomsday preppers best fruit bush because they are so easy to grow in any conditions. Not mine. My soil is that bad, I guess. They just didn't prosper. What we did have prosper was Saskatoon, which is a type of service berry. <clears throat> Sometimes it was June berry. And we picked uh, a good haul of Saskatoon fruit, took the seeds and we're stratifying them. Stratifying is what we're doing with the, excuse me, the plums, the cherries, Saskatoons, the blueberries were stratifying. 
stratification. There's a lot of types of stratification. I want to make that very clear. There's no just one way to do this stuff. Um, I think it's Henry Koch wrote a book, Growing Trees from Seeds. If you can find that book, read that book. But stratification is basically you're trying to replicate the growing conditions that these seeds are going to be in before they actually germinate. So we want to synth we want to basically synthesize winter because a lot of trees, a lot of seeds don't germinate in the fall, they germinate in the spring, but they fall in the autumn, in the fall. They come they 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 are ready to drop or ready to be eaten and then dropped. <clears throat> so some of them need to be scratched at like walnuts because squirrels evolved with like the walnuts evolved to work with squirrels and other nut eating uh, animals, which would scratch away and chew away at that shell. And then that gives the nut, the, the, the seed inside the, the German side to actually break free and grow. Um, that's a form of stratification. You can actually take walnuts and take a rasp and just grind down one side of the shell and then put those into cold storage. Cold stratification is what I'm doing for a lot of them. The Saskatoon seeds, because the, the fruits are ready in June, we actually picked them, processed the seeds out, ate the fruit, <clears throat> and then we have two months of hot stratification, which is we put them into paper towel that was dampened and then um, dried out as best as possible, like squeezing, and then put them into vacuum sealed bags with the seeds and then put them in our greenhouse, our, our porch top greenhouse, and left them like that for the whole summer. And then this winter or this fall, we then put them in the crisper in our fridge and they're going to stay in there for 120 days. So two months, hot stratification, uh, four months, cold stratification. And I'm probably going to leave them in there until April. And then I'm going to bring them out and get them into starter trays, which are tree size starter trays, not the regular starter trays. They're, they're deep. So a taproot can develop. And we're going to not, uh, we're going to put them into all those and put them under grow lights in a warm environment, all of like March and April. And then in May, bring them out and start hardening them outside, bring them back in at night until it gets to the warm temperatures that we need. And then we're going to plant them in the food forest and give the extra seedlings away to friends so they can have Saskatoons. And then we have the cherries and the cherries, the sweet cherries literally came from just a bag of cherries that we got from the grocery store. We liked them. They were organic cherries. We liked the flavor. And so I took a pair of wire cutters and I snipped the cherry pit in half and there's a little seed inside and I rinsed those and soaked them overnight, put them in with a piece of paper towel that was dampened, vacuum sealed them and put them immediately in the fridge and they're going to stay in there until next spring. And then when we have everything else, that's cold stratification. We're keeping them in there all winter. And then they're going to go in, in the, uh, actually, no, with the cold, with the sweet cherries, we're going to cold stratify them until about September, October, take them out and put them into planters of soil and then leave those downstairs in a cool semi-warm environment, not necessarily under grow lights, but somewhere where they can kind of stay dormant for the rest of the winter. And then we're going to let them grow in the spring and plant them outside. Cause I want a ton of cherry bushes and I want a ton of Saskatoons and I want a ton of plums and all these, you have to learn how those seeds need to, we had a seed saving episode way back, I think in like March or April, but this is really what seed saving with trees and shrubs is, is like, you got to process them, get them ready, stratify them in different ways. And stratification in general, stratification is you're trying to synthesize the natural growing conditions that these plants will go through. These seeds will go through before they germinate in a 
controlled environment. So I could just scatter these seeds outside and maybe one will germinate. But if I stratify them and I, and I pretend that I am mother nature, I become uncle nature in that sense. Um, there's a higher success rate, a much higher success rate. I might get 60% of these seeds to germinate instead of one out of a hundred. And we do have like 120 cherry seeds. I ate a lot of cherries in that one week. We have uh, 25 Saskatoon seeds, and we're going to try and get all of them to germinate. We might only get 20, but that's still 20 service bear Saskatoon bushes in our garden. Um, I'm going to try again on, on the Haskaps next year, but I'm not sure. I, I, what I'm hoping to do is I'm going to get cuttings is what I'm hoping to get. <clears throat> and I'm going to grow uh, black currants and Haskaps from cuttings. That's really my only option is I, I don't trust the Haskap bushes that I ordered online and they they showed up dry and dead and wilted and I couldn't get them to come back. Really, really upset about that. But yeah, that's a lot of the crops we're doing. We also have watermelons and squash and we have all these sunflowers. We have uh, Siberian or Russian mammoth sunflower and they are like 12 feet tall now with leaves the size of burdock leaves. It's it's incredible. Absolutely in, incredible. And yeah, that's really the crops and what we've been getting up to the last you know, three and a half months has been working all that stuff, but there's a lot more going on here, which let's get into now. So <clears throat> for the last month, month and a half, we've been planning out, um, our move. We are moving from where we currently live, where we currently reside. We're not moving far. We're moving like 150 yards. Um, my family owned this home and my parents are hoping to move into this place in the next year and a half, two years or less. Um, because they want to be closer to family. They live out in the boonies where they are currently, and they want to be closer to my grandmother and my uncle and my cousins and my aunts and everybody else. And as well, it's this, this home is shared between them and us. We, we both take care of this place and work on this place. This was my great grandmother's home that I'm currently residing in, but they, my mother's retiring. My father has retired and they're like, you know what? We don't want to be paying the bills that we're paying the, the, the property taxes that they're paying where they are on waterfront up in the Kortha lakes. Um, they're tired of doing that. So they want to come back here and move in here. So we're getting ready to move. And where we're moving is, uh, this past Friday, we drove out <coughs> to Newmarket, Ontario area to sign a contract for a off grid cabin, uh, that we are moving to the property. It is a 40 foot by 15 wide, uh, cabin that is got nine solar panels on it. A uh, brand new battery bank is being installed this October when we get it, uh, or between now and October, it has a Sunmar composting toilet. Uh, one of the top of the line of its era, <coughs> it's a seven year old toilet. So we should have it for another like 15, 20 years or more before we have to start looking at replacing, which at which point we might get a separate, which helps remove the, the wet waste from the dry waste. Um, I'm a very big proponent of off-grid living. I'm a huge supporter of it. Any person that can go off-grid, I want them to. I want them to do it. Um, and so this has been our project for the last like month and a half getting ready. <clears throat> we are getting ready this week to start breaking ground to clear the land that we're going to be building this home on or installing this home on. Um, and we're going to be installing a porch on it that's going to be fully screened in. It's actually going to be insulated. So it's going to be actually extending it from being a 40 by 15 to like a 40 by 30. So we're making a, a quite a large home for ourselves here. And we're going to be putting like a wood stove in the on that porch. And we're going to be basically building like a cabin off the cabin kind of thing. 
Um, rain cisterns. We already have one 1,300 gallon rain cistern. We're going to be getting one or two more and we're going to be installing them all up with a rain catchment system at the house, <clears throat> at the off-grid cabin so that we hopefully don't have to get a well. Uh, if we do, that'll be down the road and we'll save the money up for that. But for now, we don't need a well is what we're hoping. Uh, there will be propane hooked up to it, which will be the only thing that kind of connects us to any kind of grid is propane because we have a propane stove and a propane water heater for the place. So that's the only real carbon footprint that we will have is the propane. So this is what we've been working on for about a month and a half. We are moving it here between October 1st and October 14th. Somewhere in that time frame, we're going to be moving the home here and installing everything and getting the solar panels set up. We're clearing trees out of the way as we speak. We're getting ready to knock down a bunch of poplars that are going to be blocking the sun. <clears throat> and then we're going to start opening up the canopy more so that we can have all full daylight from sunrise to sunset because we live facing the northern shore of Rice Lake. So our house is will be at the top of a hill on the northern shore of Rice Lake. So sunrise to almost sunset, we'll be getting sunlight. And uh, yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. I'm really excited about this. It's really nerve-wracking. There's a lot of variables that can go wrong, and we're trying to make sure that everything's like locked in and dialed in so that everything's going to be very smooth and effortless, which is why stressed now in, in, you know, early August, instead of being stressed late September when we got to start getting this stuff actually moved. So we're hitting as many of the points as we can, clearing the land, leveling the land, potentially building with some retaining walls. And then once the actual home is installed and built up and reinforced and everything else and got power running, we start building our workshop. And we've got a few other projects that we're going to be doing, like down the road. But for now, the main one is after this, the, after the home is installed, the cat, the off-grid cabin, we're building a workshop so we can make things again. We can actually have the, the Canadian Bushcraft crew together making crooked knives and forging out tools and all that kind of stuff. And as well as carving things into like cooking paddles, canoe paddles, snowshoes, uh, all that kind of stuff again, as well as storage for all of our belongings because it's a small cabin, you know, 40 by 15. There's not a lot of room in there. It's pretty much just a larger version of a tiny home. Uh, but also on that line, we want to have a, a new space for the podcast. So we're building a workshop up there, maybe made of storage containers or shipping containers. It may be made out of a Quonset hut. We're not sure yet, but that'll be the second thing after the house. The the, the next thing right after the, the home is installed, the off-grid home. Uh, because the podcast needs a good soundproof place here. You're probably hearing the vibration of our fridge upstairs. You might be hearing a couple of the air conditioners or fans upstairs. You might hear our cat once in a while. The goal is with this workshop is to actually have a completely soundproofed studio that we can record the podcast in that we can film videos in and, and do educational videos and content and everything else for our YouTube channel and everything again all that happening. So that's all in the works right now. Eventually we're going to have like a bunkie there that we can have people stay in. We're going to have uh, a cooking pavilion so that we have an outdoor cooking area that can also double as like a classroom area um, with like a cob oven, an open fire with a rafter pot hanging system, as well as an open fire barbecue and a big Texas smoker that I'll be building this September. Um, that's all the projects for the off-grid home. That's going to be expanding our off our, our homestead, the quarter acre homestead into a full sustainable agriculture, sustainable living kind of goal that we've had for years and years and years. And we're finally able to put our money where our mouth is, is really what it is. So that's all the work that we're doing from now until October 
is getting that stuff ready. All the garden work has mostly been done. The pond needs a bit of modification so the, so the filter can be more conducive to what we need. But really, that's it. Everything in the garden and the homestead is ready. Now it's time to actually start working on our home on the homestead. So that's the next part. And the final thing I really want to bring up uh, is in-person courses. We've been doing online classes with Nagajwan on Friendship Center and a lot of other groups. If you want online classes for your groups, whether it's a class group or uh, an organization you work for or what have you, or even just a bunch of friends, you can contact us at CanadianBushCrafter at gmail.com. If you're asking questions for the podcast, please send that to the Canadian Bushcraft podcast at gmail.com. But if you're looking for courses, Canadian Bushcrafter at gmail.com or contact us on social media, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, what have you. Um, but starting hopefully this fall, we are going to be running up uh, in-person classes and they're going to be very small. We're trying to, can we're trying to contain it to actual, um, COVID-19 protocol that we are trying to obey and follow and actually become the leading force in, in Hiawatha First Nation for businesses. Cause we want to bring people in, but we want to make sure everyone is absolutely safe. So there's no promises on when this is going to begin yet, but it will be happening sometime either in September or October, potentially November. Um, and the classes that we have lined up so far are intro to homesteading. So you'll be learning about all the quarter acre homestead in person, seeing how it all works. People will see the videos and they see our photos. And then of course this podcast, you've heard me talk all about it, uh, but they don't really understand it until they really come out. We had a friend of mine come out, Nelson stop by. Hi Nelson. Uh, he came out with his family just a couple of days ago. And when he saw everything, he was just like, I thought I understood this until I saw this. This is a lot of work because he had been to my place before when all that was just bush. That was all just trees that were overgrown with a bunch of invasive dog strangling vine and uh, West Indy gherkin vine and just buckthorns and stuff. And then he saw a homestead come out of it like less than a year. He was really impressed. I was really proud of that moment. It made me feel really good. Um, so intro to homesteading is one of the first things we want to be teaching so that you can learn how to do this stuff yourself at home. Even if you're living in an urban area, you can homestead. Urban homesteading is a very big thing. Um, wood carving classes with me and Ryan and Radic. So that's one thing that we're trying to develop as well. Um, fungus workshop. So mushroom workshop is something that we really want to do. It's always been a big hit whenever we did mushroom workshops. We want to do them now again. Uh, we're just trying to figure out the logistics for that one. Uh, intro to blacksmithing. So bringing in some of my mentors and bringing in some of our skill crafts to have students spend a day with us. And these are all one day classes. We can't have any overnights. We don't want overnight classes yet. These are all going to be one day classes that you can come out to on a Saturday kind of thing and learn as much as we can or a Sunday. And, uh, so intro to blacksmithing will be like, you come out and you learn how to make an all, you learn how to do all this, the, the, like the main techniques of blacksmithing so that when you go home, you take an all with you and potentially a knife blade. So those are the things that we're trying to teach you in a, in a one day workshop. Uh, life on the trap line will be beginning this December. We will be having people come out and learn how Anishinaabe trapping lifestyle has been. So how it is living in a camp, in a big hot tent, all the things you need to have for that, the cooking that we do. And then of course, going out and checking and setting traps, processing the animals that we catch, all that kind of stuff. Uh, life on the trap line is a big, it's a passion of mine. And so we want to make sure that people can learn from that. One that we're hoping to do this September, and we're probably gonna be doing it with an organization, not specifically here at our place, 
uh, is a Minoman harvest or wild rice harvest workshop where people come out and learn how to knock Minoman, knock wild rice into canoes, and then process that into delicious, delicious food that is dense in nutrients and dense in calories. Uh, the final workshop that we're getting ready to do is an indigenous food systems workshops. So processing acorns, processing corn, processing wild rice, learning about trapping and hunting, all these indigenous food sources and how it all ties together. Just like what we've been doing on the podcast every season, we've been doing a winter to fall episode, a winter episode, a spring episode. And I'm waiting for a couple of friends of mine that I worked with recently to do our summer episode of indigenous food systems, which will be coming out in a week or two. So that's all of our updates really. So from the garden and the quarter acre homestead, the hunter's journey course, again, just remember you have until August 14th, 2021, and then it goes from $495 to $595. So if you want to save a hundred bucks, go to the hunter's journey com right now register for the course and save a hundred dollars but also we've covered everything from that to the crops to our move that is happening this october the very stressful but exciting move and of course we are doing in-person classes soon very soon i can't guarantee when yet we aren't announcing the dates yet but i wanted you to get excited like i am because we got all these people listening to this podcast we're getting people all the time asking when are you going to start running classes again soon very, very soon. We've been holding off till 2022. And then recently after looking at the statistics and looking at what's going on in Ontario, we feel semi-comfortable opening up in-person small group courses. So hold on to your butts for that. And that's it. That's it folks. I'm going to go back. We're going to get back to finishing some work on the pond. And then I've got to get started on actually a birch bark canoe project I'm doing with a friend of mine. Uh, we're just repairing some birch bark canoes for a good friend. So that'll be starting today, this afternoon, this evening kind of thing. And then tomorrow we go balls to the wall with that. We go hard. We're going to finish these canoes hopefully in the next two weeks or less. But anyways, take care of yourselves. We love you. Also, huge shout out to our patrons such as Aaron Hayward, Paul McCarney, Sarah, Renee, Tom, all you amazing people. You're why the homestead is working. You're why the podcast is still going. You're why all of this is possible. Thank you from the bottom of our souls, the bottom of our hearts. My little black shriveled heart is getting a little bit bigger. I'm starting to feel like the Grinch now. My heart's getting a little bit bigger and hopefully that doesn't cause any cardiac arrest or anything. But thank you so much for all of your support, every single one of you. And of course, our all of the rest of our dear listeners, thank you for tuning in. You make this so, so worth it to me. We will see you next week with the next episode of the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast. Take care.